The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I'm Mary Clement. The scripture reading today is from Mark 14, 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. That includes those of you who are here in the sanctuary. That includes those of you who are dialing in uh, wherever you're dialing in from on your spring break. Uh, It also includes those who continue to remain at home, uh, taking extra precaution uh, as we try to uh, scratch our way, God willing, out of this uh, pandemic. Uh, We have been in a series uh, on uh, Jesus, that's the title of the series, and uh, our texts are all from the Gospel according to Mark. Remember that Mark is a likely recording of the Apostle Peter's perspective on the life of Christ. Peter was an eyewitness. Mark was a protege uh, of Peter. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Jesus, our bread, and specifically focusing on uh, the very first Lord's Supper uh, that Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room. So this past week we were were having lunch with some new friends, and uh, these friends are new to our church. They actually came uh, first to our church at some point in the middle of the pandemic. And they said, we've just loved it. And and my response was, really? Uh, And and I'm I'm always surprised when, and I don't know why I'm surprised, but I'm always surprised when I hear that uh, pandemic church is a, it feels like a positive thing uh, to people. And and, uh, 
Uh, I'm also struck by the fact that our, one of our largest new member classes ever in the history of our church happened three or four months ago, also right in the middle of the pandemic. And so uh, I can only conclude, and this is what I told uh, our new friends at lunch, uh, is that, that there are some things that I miss the most. Uh, and I guess those are the only things you miss or the things that, that aren't here at the time. And so you're going to miss those the most. I miss uh, a lot of faces that I haven't seen in a while. And I know they've seen my face and maybe you're looking at me right now, uh, but there are a lot of faces that I have not seen because of the threat that this pandemic has posed for over a year now. Uh, I miss hugging people. I miss seeing the other half of your face. Uh, those of you who are here as you sing and as you arrive and as you head out of the building. I miss especially uh, the way that we do the Lord's Supper in a more safe environment. Uh, if, if, if you were here before the pandemic, you know that our normal way of observing the Lord's Supper is to line this front of the room, this part of the floor, with tables. And during communion after the sermon, every single week, uh, people come up and they gather around the tables in about a dozen people at a time, and somebody at the table, the host of the table, speaks over them, blesses them, people shoulder to shoulder, body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. It's meaningful, the room is bustling, and, and uh, I think if, if, if I miss anything sorely, uh, it's communion together uh, in the same room with my church family. Uh, in the earliest days of the church, the Lord's Supper was referred to by believers as the agape feast or the love feast. And it, it was an extended time. And uh, there's indication in the book of Acts that it didn't happen yearly like the Passover. It didn't happen even weekly like we observe the Lord's Supper here at Christ Pres. But it happened daily. It says that daily... The believers in Christ broke bread together. That's clear communion language with glad and sincere hearts. There was this robust, incarnational, together, communal life in the body of Christ. Uh, there are two significant meals in the Bible that are featured in this text. One is the Passover, and uh, that was the meal that was instituted by Yahweh, uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, in the 10th plague, Pharaoh was refusing to let Israel go as the Lord demanded and, and leave their season of captivity and, and become their own people. And so God sent a series of plagues to Pharaoh and to Egypt to get his attention. And the last of those plagues was the Passover plague. And it went like this. Anyone and everyone who believes the word of the Lord, that the Lord is going to pass over uh, Israel, or, or Egypt in judgment. Everybody who believes this, if you slaughter a lamb and you put some of the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, the Lord will pass over you and there will be no other death in your home. But every home in Egypt will experience either the death of a child or the death of a lamb. And those who believed did what the Lord said, and, and, and they, they slaughtered the lamb, they ate the lamb uh, in a feast in their home, and the Lord passed over them and spared them and protected them. And here we have the Lord's Supper, 
which is given by Jesus at the Passover uh, in the year of his death. And the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Passover is significant because from that point forward, there has been no more blood shed at the table. There has been no more lamb to eat except there has. Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb that everybody who believes in him and takes the body, the bread, and eats it and takes the cup and drinks it in faith, the Lord will pass over that person and that household and not pass judgment, but instead include and welcome that believer or group or family of believers into his family through adoption. So today it's my privilege to remind your heart and also my heart what makes this meal, the Lord's Supper, so significant and so central for the people of God. And hopefully for those who are wondering why we do this every week, uh, you will walk away today understanding exactly why and also hungry and thirsty for next Sunday. To put it simple, the reason why there are no longer any guts There is no longer any gore and there is no longer any death on the table is because Christ himself has died and became the main course. This is my body. This is my blood. Four meaningful realities come from this. One, we are more sinful than we are good. Number two, we are more loved than we are sinful. Number three, we are more kept than we are threatened. And then lastly, we are more included than we are left out. So let's start with the first one, which might be the hardest one for some to swallow. We are more sinful than we are good. The blood of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, the only human being in the history of the world that never did a single thing wrong, that never committed a single offense. His blood was shed so that your blood and my blood would not have to be shed in judgment. That's actually the price of entry. The price of entry is recognizing that it costs us nothing, but that it costs him everything. Actually, it does cost us something. It costs us our pride. It costs us the notion, the idea, uh, the sentiment that, that, that we can somehow qualify ourselves to sit around the table of God. We can't. What the Lord's Supper says to us, especially that, that, that a cup representing the blood of Christ is on the table, what, what, what this supper says to us is that our sin is so grotesque and our selfishness is so deep and so insidious that the Son of God was required to give his life in order for us to have any hope of being reconciled to God. That's how bad it is for us. Jesus enters a conversation with his disciples to drive this point home. It says in verse 18 that as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, And then they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? 
And Jesus says to him, or to them, it is one of the twelve, and for that one, it would have been better for him if he had not even been born. What terrible words. Could you imagine hearing these words out of the mouth of the Son of God concerning you? It would be better for that person had they not even been born than to be born and become my betrayer. What's remarkable, though, is that in the very next verses, Jesus says, it's not just one. All of you are going to fall away. And then, of course, Peter comes in in, in characteristic fashion and says to Jesus, well, I know what you mean by all. You, you mean all of them. Because you and I, we both know this, right? You feel me, Jesus? We have this loyalty thing between us, and so you know I've got your back. You know that I'm not going to betray you. And of course, Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then all of the rest of the disciples said, I'm not going to deny you either. They emphatically said the same. Not me, Lord. So in one moment, they're saying, is it me? And then the next moment, they're saying, there's no way it's going to be me. We are loyal until we're not. Behold the human condition. Jesus is arrested in verses 43 through 50, and it says that all of the disciples fled. All of the disciples left Jesus. Then after that, we read about Peter in verses 66 through 72, where it happened with Peter just as Jesus said. Peter betrayed him three times, and then a rooster went cock-a-doodle-doo. And Peter walked away in defeat. If we're not careful, it, it would be easy for us, in retrospect, 2,000 years later, to dismiss the apostles as cowards. And yes, there was some cowardice involved here for sure. But if we just dismiss them and we say, what cowards, I don't think we're thinking very carefully about the situation that they were in. I mean, we're, we're fragile when our party doesn't win an election. What would we be like if, if the government was actually going to kill us because of our loyalty to our Lord and Master? Would we have been courageous when we freak out over much smaller things? We don't recognize sometimes that when we look at the apostles at their worst, we're also looking at ourselves. We're seeing our representatives. We're, we're not seeing about just a bunch of people who messed up. We're, we're actually seeing our representatives. I've had the conversation over the years many times as a pastor where somebody has said, you know, it doesn't seem fair at all that, that the whole human race gets blamed for what Adam and Eve did when they betrayed God in the garden, went their own way, and then the curse came on the whole universe and the whole human race just because of those two. As if we would have done something different had it been us instead of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is the thing about God. He is wise enough to choose representatives that will do the exact same thing that every single one of us would do had we been in their position. 
You know, the Bible says elsewhere that Jesus knew the heart of man, and that's why Jesus didn't trust people. <laughs> he entrusted himself to God, who judges justly, but he did not entrust himself to human beings. Because the heart of Adam and Eve, to, to stray from God, is in all of us, not just some of us. Is it I? Is it I? Secondly, we are more loved then we are sinful. That question, is it I? Here's, here's a comforting thing. If you've ever asked that question, am I a betrayer? Uh, am I a Judas or, or am I a, a Peter? Here's, here's a comfort for you. If you care about the answer to that question, then the answer is no. If the answer to that question, is it I, Lord, really matters to you, if you're emotionally invested in, in needing to hear that, no, you're not the betrayer, then you're not. Those who have a heart that desire to be with God, where do you think that heart came from? Where do you think that that gift of longing and desire to be in the right with God came from? It came from him. You can take comfort in that. What makes us worthy, this is the beauty of the Lord's table, what makes us worthy to come to the table is a starts with a recognition that we are unworthy. What makes us fit for the table of Christ is our recognition and acknowledgement that we are unfit. But that he comes in and he sweeps in and provides the blood that enables and enthuses the Lord, to pass over us and not pass judgment and not shed blood and not retaliate for whatever betrayals we have committed. As Melville said, heaven have mercy on us all, for we, are, we pagans and Presbyterians alike, are dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. That's the human condition. That's us. But, but when we recognize this, when we, when we dare to ask the question, Lord, is it I? That's when Jesus sweeps in with his grace and says, yes, it is you, my beloved betrayers. Now eat. Now drink. This is for you. This is my body this is my blood. I am the main course from this time forth and forevermore. I want you to think of the last time somebody treated you to an expensive meal. Not just a meal. Not just Chipotle, but like Cane Prime or something. The last time somebody treated you to something very costly and you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, like, like the guilt in me wants to put my credit card in the ta on the table and, and say, no, no, I got this, or let's split this, but you know that, that you're going to you know, be in debt maybe for a year or two if you pay for this meal because it's a Nashville meal. I mean, I remember when my wife and I were first married in St. Louis, we would go to Houlihan's every Thursday. Uh, and if you got there before 6 o'clock, you, you could get a full meal and desserts and drink for 20 bucks. 
And now, if we go to a nice Nashville restaurant, you can get a full meal with drinks and dessert for 220 bucks. When's the last time somebody splurged on you in that way? In those occasions when that's happened to me or to us, my first thought is guilt. And that's dismissible. It's a grace to be able to receive generosity from somebody else. And it's pride not to. But my second response is, man, they must really love us. They chose us for this splurge. Or he chose me for this splurge. Right here is the greatest feast splurge you will ever encounter in your life. Jesus was literally liquidated all the way to the bottom of the cup. To the end of his wealth. To to, to prepare a feast for you and for me. Greatest splurge in the history of the world. I, I love what Spurgeon says. Let this sink in. Let this sink in. God loves to forgive more than you love to sin. That's such incredible reality, such incredible truth when we do let it sink in. Where we are most defective, that is where Christ is most merciful. Where we are most damaged and ashamed is where Christ is most aggressive with his grace and with his splurges. The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, and the only joy that he did not already have in his possession was you and me. He said for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He splurged. His blood splurged all over the Calvary Hill. His heart splurged as for the first time in eternity he lost fellowship with the Father so that he could have it with you and me. He splurged for the joy set before him which positions him to say in the 8th chapter of John to the woman caught in the act of adultery before she does any apologizing, before she does any repenting or turning, before she says, I've done anything wrong. He says, I don't condemn you. That's our starting point. Now, let's talk about your sexual ethics. Now, leave your life of sin. Or Zacchaeus, a systematic crook, abusing his his position of power in the Roman government to rob from people. For his entire career, the whole city of Jerusalem thinks of this man as an SOB. And in comes Jesus and calls him by name Zacchaeus. And even though he knew my name, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to show you a hospitality like you've never known, and it's going to be in your own home. And what happens in the turn of a dime? Because Christ loved him before he loved Christ. 
this man who was one of the most greedy men in all of Israel becomes one of the most generous men in the turn of a dime because love struck him, because he discovered that Christ loves to forgive more than Zacchaeus loves to sin. And we'll be talking more about Peter as we move in next week to Palm Sunday and then to Passion Week and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But don't let it be lost on us. Let's not let it be lost on us that when the angel appeared to the women at the tomb to announce the resurrection of Christ, in Mark's gospel alone, which remember is also Peter's gospel, the angel of the Lord doesn't just tell the women, go tell the others that the Lord is risen. The angel of the Lord says, go tell the others and Peter. The one who fell the hardest. The one who's feeling the most ashamed. The one who can't look himself in the mirror anymore. Go tell Peter, I'm coming to him. That we're good. You know, Andrew Peterson has this wonderful song. The lyrics include the words, be kind to yourself. When it's you against you against you, you've got to learn to love your enemy too. We are more loved than we are sinful. Third, we are more kept than we are threatened. Again, this, this question is, it is I. What, what sensitive heart has not asked this question? You know, one time I, I heard somebody say there are going to be three surprises in heaven. And this was a kind of a decorated theologian. He says, I'm going I'm to have three surprises in heaven. Number one, all the people who are going to be there that I did not expect to be there. Secondly, all the people who are not going to be there that I did expect to be there. And thirdly, that I am there. These are the disciples, many of whom helped write the Bible. They've been with Jesus for three years, and they are still asking the question, am I the betrayer? Is it I? Nobody is thinking when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Oh, it's, it's Judas. Yeah, we got him figured out. Nobody. They're all saying, person after person, is it I, Lord? Here's the reality about the devil. The devil cannot rob you of your salvation. The devil cannot rob you of your good standing with God once you've put your trust in Christ. John's gospel assures us of that. It says that no one is able, no one has the power to snatch you out of the Father's hand. The devil cannot rob you of your salvation, but he can rob you for a time of your assurance. Even John Bunyan, the writer of the classic Pilgrim's Progress, the Puritan minister, he wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, he wrestles with doubt as to whether or not he has committed this thing that the gospel according to Matthew calls the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or in the life to come. What terrifying words. Two things almost kept me from not going into ministry. One was the fear of public speaking. And the other was the fear that I had committed this sin. Because I didn't grow up in the church. 
It's not to say that kids who grow up in the church never have their doubts, but I was introduced to the gospel and to Jesus and to Christianity somewhere around age 20. And I had all kinds of doubts. How could this be true? Virgin birth, walking on water, parting the Red Sea, rising from the dead, really? And so I had to work through a series of doubts. And, and then after I'd worked through my doubts and, and, and had seen that, that, that Harvard and Oxford scholars actually look into the historicity of this stuff and end up becoming believers. And then I realized for myself, this is all true. And then I, I start feeling a flood of shame that I had ever doubted to begin with. Have I, is it I, have I committed the unpardonable blasphemy with my doubts? Now here's where the Greek, the original language matters so much. If you go to the original language around this teaching about the unpardonable sin, it's, it literally says whoever continues to commit this sin will not be forgiven in this life or in the life to, to come. That makes all the difference, you guys. Whoever continues, in other words, if there's ever a point in your life, even if you have spoken insulting words against the Lord, if you have cursed his name like Peter did, there's still hope for you. And here's some more hope. If you fear that you're guilty of the unpardonable sin, it is, it is a sure sign that you're not. If you want to be with Jesus. If your heart is soft toward him, it means that he is already soft toward you. If you want to be with him, it means he already has you. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. Come as you are. There was a season for me where, where verses like this, you know, better if my betrayer had not even been born would emotionally paralyze me. And the, the, the original Greek language in the New Testament will set you free from that fear. Here's the other thing that, that gives the disciples and should give us confidence. Every word that Jesus speaks in the form of a prediction, every word comes true. You could call some of these micro-predictions. He says to his disciples, I want you to go in the city and there's going to be a man carrying a water jar. That's an interesting detail. Man carrying a water jar, and he's going to take you to a place, and there's going to be a furnished room, and I want you to set it up so we can have the meal. The, the, the person who owns the house is going to, going to let you in, and you're going to set the room up, and we're going to have the Passover together. It happened exactly as Jesus had told him, it says. Jesus predicted one of you is going to betray me all the way and fully and finally, and Judas did. Jesus says all of you are going to betray me at least seasonally, and all of them did. Jesus said that Peter's going to deny him three times, and then a rooster's going to go cock-a-doodle-doo, and it happened exactly that way. Jesus said he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, and it happened exactly that way. And then he's going to rise on the third day, and it happened exactly that, day, that way. All of these seasonal micro-fulfillments where basically Jesus, to the detail, a man carrying water, all of it happens? Is this not the greatest assurance that everything that he said that has not been completed yet will also be fulfilled? Jesus, one of the things that Jesus said that has not happened yet is I will drink this cup anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. 
It doesn't say with you here, but if you go to Matthew's gospel, it does say with you. I will drink this cup. This means that his faithfulness does not depend on yours. His faithfulness does not depend on yours. Soren Kierkegaard was reflecting on Peter's betrayal and said, it, said this. Christ's love for Peter was boundless. Christ did not say Peter must change first and, and, and become another man before I can love him again. No, just the opposite. Jesus said, Peter is Peter and I love him. Love, if anything, will help Peter become another man. Kierkegaard continues, Jesus preserved the friendship unchanged and in this, in this very way helped Peter to become another man. And the rest of the story, I mean, you see the boldness of Peter, the courage of Peter in the book of Acts, and the history books tell us that, that, that when the executioners came to, to fulfill what Jesus said would happen to Peter, that they're going to stretch your arms out just like they, they will mine, or like they did mine one day. They're going to take you to a place where you do not want to go. And when that happened, when it was time for Peter to be crucified, this now courageous man, no longer a coward, because being loved in this way makes you brave. He defies the government authorities and says, turn me upside down before you do it. Because I am not worthy to die in the same way that my master, whom you also killed, the Lord of history. I'm not worthy to die in the same manner that he did, so turn me upside down for Pete's sake, pun intended. And they did. His faithfulness doesn't depend on yours. And when this love sinks in, when this love sinks in, it will change you. It will make you brave like Peter. It will make you generous like Zacchaeus. It will make you chaste like those caught in adultery. It will make you all of these things. It will not make you perfect just yet. You will stumble and fall. But it will reset the trajectory of the way you live your life. So hopeful. Finally, we are more included than we are left out. Israel is a nation that revolves around a feast. It's like the whole nation is like this big dinner club. Every year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, of the Trumpets, Feast of Atonement, Feast of the Tabernacle, and of course, the Passover. The national identity of Israel was built around feasting. And then Acts 2 happens. Pentecost happens. In Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, and it says the Holy Spirit comes down, and people are hearing the good news of the gospel preached in all of their different languages, all of a the sudden there's this overt, explicit addition, cross-cultural addition of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, which was God's intention from the very beginning. And then what happens after Pentecost? It says they ate together. Breaking bread, enjoying one another's fellowship with glad and sincere hearts every day in their homes. What better time than now to lean into cross-cultural love? 
in a climate that is filled with so much divisiveness, so much othering, so much shaming and scolding in the name of wokeness or anti-wokeness. What if this was potentially Christian's finest hour to be counter-culture? To be a people of inclusion and embrace, of welcome, of love, of compassion, of empathy. I'm so grateful that, that Sarah shared some of her grief about events in Atlanta this past week. Actually, we first heard it from our daughter who lives within a long, wa a long, a long walk of one of the spas where the shootings took place, and she was afraid. And as you no doubt know by now, there were eight people killed. Six of them were of Asian descent. So I've spent this past week uh, communicating as much as I can with, with my Asian American friends, uh, especially in New York City where nearly half of the church we were part of uh, were Asian Americans. Uh, also around the country, and the friends that I have in different networks that are Asian Americans and also in our own church at Christ Presbyterian, men, women, covenant children. And the common theme across the board, whatever the shooter's motives might have been, the common theme is we are reeling. We're tired. We're afraid. One of my dearest Asian American friends wrote this to me in an email. This hate crime, and then he qualified that, he said whether it was due to racism or to self-loathing because of a sex addiction. Right? This brother's not judging hearts or motives. But it doesn't change the outcome that six Asian American people were killed. And so he says, this hate crime, whatever it was for, whether it's hatred of a race, hatred of women, hatred of self, it has shaken me as an Asian American man more than I thought it would. I am feeling an unbearable weight of being yellow. So for Christians, this is how we live differently. We don't look for political categories to shove this conversation into and let that be our grid. Instead, we become quick to listen. We become aggressive with a desire to demonstrate empathy and care and brotherhood. Right? Because in the body of Christ, if one of us is hurting, it means all of us is hurt, are hurting. If your elbow is sore, your whole body reacts to that. It's the same in the body of Christ. This could be Christian's finest hour. It could be. In such a fractured, such a divided climate that makes no promises of getting any better. When you become a Christian, your race, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your career path becomes 
a distant second to your identity. Now your identity is that you're a child of God, called to love every person and every kind of person, especially those who are of the household of faith, but not exclusively those who are of the household of faith. Called to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, to reach out, to ask how are you doing, to splurge, and to open your table. Doesn't matter if you lean left or lean right. Doesn't matter if you're woke or have concerns about wokeness. It's not about that. This is about basic compassion. Somebody's hurting, somebody's scared. You move toward them. This table is a great place for that to happen. This table represents that. You know, the Old Testament talks about how wealthy people who own farms would leave the crops on the periphery of their farms so that those who were from other nations and other cultures and also those who were poor, those who were strangers, those who were injured could have food. Think about this. In the Great Commission, who's on the periphery? Who are the ones who glean from the harvest of Christ at the edges? It's us. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about. Our hope is built around what a first century Middle Eastern Jewish man did. And so being on the periphery and yet drawn toward the center, it then becomes our privilege to reach out to the periphery and pull others toward the center where this feast awaits. Finally, in addition to being a cross-cultural, compassionate feast, this is also a proudly and loudly dysfunctional one. It's the dysfunctional family meal. Jesus is the God of the weak. He's the God of the underdog. He's the God of crazy people. He's the God of the disadvantaged. He's the God of the material poor and the poor in spirit. He's the God of the hurting poor. He's the God of the hurting rich. The kingdom of heaven, it says in Matthew's gospel, is like a wedding banquet. And then Luke says, blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. So if you look around any given Sunday, anytime you're, you're gathered with a group of believers, this is your dinner club. It's your weekly dinner club. Jesus says this, when you give a dinner or banquet, be sure that you do not leave out the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In other words, any table to be a Christian table has to be open to messiness, has to be inviting and welcoming to messiness. One of the greatest examples of this that I've ever known or seen or heard of is Francis and Edith Schaefer's Labrie. It means shelter, and it's this, this home that they opened up first in Switzerland. Now there are many sites. One of our elders uh, here uh, at Christ Pres is it's trying to get a Labrie-type community going in Nashville as well. But here's what Francis Schaeffer said about Labrie. They, they invite people in who are spiritually curious, who are down and out, who are struggling, who have ultimate questions. They welcome them in, they feed them, they care for them, they demonstrate hospitality, and they talk about meaningful things. Schaeffer said this about Labrie. The first three years, all of our wedding presents were wiped out. Our sheets were torn 
Holes were burned in our rugs. Drugs came into our home. People vomited in our rooms. Then later on, looking back on his childhood, their son Frank wrote this. My parents' compassion was consistent. Not advocation compassion that someone else would carry out with tax dollars or at arm's length, but rather they opened their home. Those gathered around our table represented a cross-section of humanity and intellectual ability, from mental patients to Oxford students and all points of need in between. My mother and father marshaled arguments in favor of God, but no words were as convincing as their willingness to lay material possessions, privacy, and time on the line, sometimes at personal risk and always with the understanding that if they were being taken advantage of, that was fine too. Wonder where they got that. Perhaps it was the one who had gone before, before them, who had been taken advantage of repeatedly, who is still taken advantage of repeatedly, and who does not say it's fine, but he also doesn't retaliate for it. Instead, he says, Peter, come receive my love and have some courage. Zacchaeus, come receive my love and have some generosity. Woman caught in the act of adultery, come receive my love and receive some chastity. Why do we do this? Because Jesus went first.